Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, there's a concert hall in Vienna where your mouth had a thousand reviews. There's a shoulder where death comes to cry. The moon's too bright. The chain's too tight. The beast won't go to sleep. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. The poor stay poor. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Good afternoon, everybody. This is this is Vinyl Tap, and as you can tell, I'm going to be your host tonight, Tony Slagle. And as always, I'm joined with our regular host, Doug Cooper. Good evening. <laughs> <laughs> and our producer, Jonathan Jamro. Good afternoon, Tapsters. And we are in the Vinegaroon in very hot Austin, Texas, but uh, out of the elements, which is always a good thing. Yeah. But tonight we're going to be talking. There's rooms close to this one that are air conditioned. <laughs> this one's okay. It's been it's been cool for till we started. So it's not a hundred. No, it's not a hundred. It's only ninety eight right now. <laughs> Well, tonight we're going to be talking about an album that came out in 1988. This is the eighth album from poet, songwriter extraordinaire Leonard Cohen, his 1988 album, I'm Your Man. And uh, for those of you who've been listening for a while, you can probably guess whose pick this might be. It's not mine, as I'm hosting. It's not Mr. Cooper's. It is, in fact, our producer, Jonathan J.M. Rose pick. So I'm going to uh, yeah. ask you, J.M., mm-hmm. why did you pick this album? Well, for one thing, it was made in the 80s. Oh, that's, seems to be uh, that's a, that's, uh, seems to be something that, that's a big uh, desert for us. Yes, 1980s. Yes, the 80s are um, not one of our strong suits. I think the 90s may be our least the, strong. The good thing about this or album, the, or the now, or the, the good now. thing about this album is it doesn't sound like it came out in the 1980s. I think that's, that's sarcastic. That was sarcasm. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I was very confused. Um, why did I pick this album? Yes. Okay, so Leonard Cohen has been one of those guys that I've I've always known. Uh, who, I, I've known about him, but I think a lot of people are more familiar with his music than they are with him as an artist. Uh, and that's how I kind of came to know him. I I think the first. Uh, song of his that I became familiar with was Suzanne. You want to travel blind and you know that she will trust you for you've touched her perfect body with your mind.
Jesus was a sailor. And it was done by uh, Judy Collins. Yeah, she was the first sort of big person. She wasn't the first person to record that song. Right. Um, but she was the first. She's the one who kind of put him on the map right. by recording that song. Yeah, but, um, yeah, she's yeah. We'll get into the history of that yeah. in a little while. But um, but it, there was just he he was just one of those guys. I, I was familiar with his songs before I was familiar with who he was in particular. Um, now a question, real quick, John, to cut you off. Familiar with his songs in the sense of other people doing them. Other people doing them. Yeah, because that's how I came to know Laren Cohen too was somebody else yeah. doing a song of his that I found to be a remarkable song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like. Uh, I would read, even when I was a kid, I would read the liner notes of of albums, and I'd notice that some of the albums that my parents had had Leonard Cohen as the author, you know, as a, as the uh, name under the song title. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you'd read stuff, oh, and the great young songwriter Leonard Cohen um, in, the, in the liner notes. But um, so there's just been always this kind of mystique about Leonard Cohen that I've, I've always had. And then um, I saw him on Austin City Limits when this album that we're talking about, he was touring this uh, album. And uh, this album was on Austin City Limits. He was touring when he, and this was the, this, the first song that he did on Austin City Limits was First We Take Manhattan. Off really? Of yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. To me. Um, he should change the lyrics for Austin. It's just <laughs> an in, it's an interest. I mean, that first it, we take Lubbock. Is there is there a song in your mind? If you were to, if you were in your mind to hear that song and think of Austin Limits, is there a song that sounds more or more far away from what Austin City Limits is than that song? Well, I think that's one of the things that just shocked me because yeah, exactly right. I mean, at the time, Austin City Limits was doing like. Kevin Welch and Lyle Lovett. And I mean, it, it was really in that folk uh, country idiom. But, you know, well, he's got he's got lots of folks. He's on. got a lot of folk uh, yeah. credentials. Yeah. That's probably how he got in. Yeah. I'm sure it wasn't the bass keyboard thing. <laughs> no. Um, so I, I you know, before. Before that, I was a little bit familiar with him. A, a band I played in, uh, the lead singer was really into Leonard Cohen, so I'd heard some of his earlier stuff. But on this album, I just find him, his voice to just be absolutely fascinating. His voice had kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Talks? No, what they do to ham. What is it? it cured. cured. It, his, his voice seems to be more cured, it, it, and it's a little more interesting than I think his previous albums. Well, it, he, it's he has two voices. If yeah. you listen to his first album and this album, yeah. uh, they're very different. Yeah. Um. I, he. I want to say something about his voice because um. By the end of the, if I don't say this now, and I'm probably going to say it a couple of times throughout the podcast. If by the end of, if if I don't say these things by the end of the podcast, you may think I hate Leonard Cohen, and I don't hate Leonard Cohen. I think his voice is like a lot of voices that I like that aren't uh, pristine yeah. or aren't even aren't even beautiful to a certain extent, it, specifically on this album. But it's definitely got character. 
And there are songs where it's perfect yep. for what he's what he's doing and I the agree. song meld perfectly. And it would be odd to hear it any other way. So yeah, I agree with you that his his voice is uh is this is another one yeah. of the guys where no, it's not a pretty voice. Yes, it's exactly perfect for what it's for. Just right. like we, we, we were not too long ago when we were doing Lou Reed, it was the same kind of thing. I started thinking about when, uh, do you remember when George Bush announced that Dick Cheney would be his running mate? I don't remember that. I mean, I know he did it, but I don't remember what, what the what fallout was. Well, immediately the press all started repeating one another. Using the same word. Anybody remember what that word was? Inspired. Uh, gravitas. Oh, wow. gravitas. All of a sudden, everybody on network television newsrooms were repeating each other saying gravitas. And uh, Which is, I think uh, that's what his voice brings to some of these songs. Yeah. But I don't think it was. I don't think he had that ability before. I think that his voice, either he learned how tender. to use. Yeah. His voice. But it, it wasn't even. Even. Like listening to some of his earlier stuff, it's it's well. If you listen to you mentioned Suzanne, if you listen to him sing Suzanne, it's not this voice. No, and it's but it's perfect for that song too. It is. So I guess at this point, I'm going to say the joke I've said multiple times on the pod, well, twice on the podcast, which is one of my favorite comedians. This is this British guy named Ben Elton who uh, created the Young Ones or co-created the Young Ones. He also wrote a lot of. Uh, um, why are you laughing? Because I know the joke you're about. Yeah, to and he's tell this is a stand-up routine. He says he's walking. He's in college. He's walking down around the campus, hum, humming a Leonard Cohen ditty, and then he goes, "Uh," <laughs> which is more appropriate for this era of Leonard yeah, Cohen than yeah. it is the earlier stuff. Because as Doug said, uh, those first three or four albums, his voice is not. It's not what you would call a typical voice, but it's it can be tender. It can be beautiful. It, it, I think it's got a lot of emotional range, but I get what you're saying about it on this album jam that it sounds cured because it definitely has character that his earlier voice did not have. I think, yeah, and I think that he found his voice on this one. Um, that, that uh, he, a voice, a voice, yeah, that, a voice that worked consistently through well, the we, album. We've been here before with um, Van Morrison. Yeah, his his initial albums, I guess six or seven of them, had one well, voice, and then it, he switched. You're missing the most obvious person who that happened to tom waits so let me tie you up with kite string i'll show you the scabs on my knee watch out for the broken glass put your shoes and socks on and come along with me let's follow that fire truck i think your house is burning down and go down to the hobo jungle. Yeah. yeah he, he, on, he did um, get into his <laughs> cookie monster voice. Uh, I can't remember the first time he used that. But the, the reason I bring that up is because while I was familiar with Leonard Cohen's other stuff before we listened to this album, I wasn't familiar with early Tom Waits. And when we did that Tom Waits album, I was shocked yeah. by how his voice sounded. Yeah. You know? So anyway, well, you know, since we're going through time, <laughs> hey, you got any of your purple berries? <laughs> yes, I've been eating them. Remember, 
We have all been here before, gentlemen. Haven't we? And it's time for a game of connections. This is where we try to... Uh, turn off the connection song? <laughs> turn off our preloaded connection song, and we try to uh, find out what this album has in common with albums we've already uh, talked about. Anybody got one? I've got one. I'll just throw out one fairly easy one. Uh, American Recordings by Johnny Cash. Yeah, okay. He Johnny Cash does a version of uh, Bird on the Wire, which is off of his third album, third or fourth Lennon Crowen album. Like a bird on the wire Like a drunk in a midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free I forget. Anyway, uh, Johnny Cash covered Leonard Cohen. I think we talked about it at the time, obviously, but um, that's yeah one connection with an album that we that we talked about. Uh, Jonathan J.M. Rowe. I've got another one. Oh, I've got one. Okay, I got one. Yeah, John Hammond. Yes, that's an oh, obvious God. one too. Yeah, okay. that's a multiple connection. Yeah, yeah. I, I can think of two. Aretha Franklin and Bob Dylan. And Springsteen. And Springsteen. Yeah. So well, I've got another Springsteen. What, a, what an amazing career. <laughs> I've got another Springsteen yeah. connection, too. All right. Uh, the Castiles played Suzanne. That was part of their repertoire when right? uh, Springsteen's oh, first band. Somebody find that. And it's out there. Us. It's not a very good recording, but I will I will attempt to put it on the website. That it doesn't sound real great, but we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what I can do. And how about the factory? Yep. He was an adjunct member, I guess, the best way to describe yeah, like junior uh, yeah, membership he, or he something. Yeah, junior like membership. Oh, I didn't know that. In the factory, yeah. He moved and, to New York after. Well, I knew, he, he, I knew he lived in New York, but I was not aware that. Yeah. That would connect us to the. Um, Lou, Reed. Lou Reed. Lou Reed and John Cale. Well, John, there's another John Cale connection. John Cale is responsible for the version of Hallelujah, which mm. is a Leonard Cohen song that everybody knows. Everybody because it's the one that even. <clears throat> that. Everybody copies too. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played and pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing. Copy of yeah, Jeff. Jeff Bu- was it Jeff Buckley that did the most famous? Was that yeah, who did I the most so, famous yeah. version of that song? Um, but uh, he, he went off of the John Kill. He went off the John Kill version. So yeah, if, if uh, you know of us, an artist in the last twenty years that hasn't covered that song, please send that information. Well, to us. Leonard Cohen talking about that is pretty funny. He said uh, he said it's a, it's an okay song and everything, but too many people have sung it. Is what he said. It's just he didn't like how ubiquitous it was. But yeah, John Cale uh, did it for a tribute album. And uh, there's kind of an interesting story. Uh, he had seen Leonard Cohen per- perform it live with different lyrics than what are on his uh, Various Positions album. Yeah. And uh, he asked Leonard Cohen to send him the lyrics. So Leonard Cohen sent him over 15 pages of lyrics and he just picked. 
he picked which ones he wanted yeah and ended up recording this version that sort of was the then become the standard version yeah. of hallelujah that everyone Blueprint. piggybacked on off right. of you know did you know that album that that was on that various positions album wasn't even released in the states Initially. Is that right? I, that. Yeah. Had his biggest, had Leonard Cohen's, what ended up being Leonard Cohen's most well-known song, and that album was never even released, or was not initially released in the States. Huh. And it it was credited to him, he, it was credited to Leonard Cohen, but he wanted to have Jennifer Warrens as she is co-credited as a as a co-singer on right, it. She's yeah. all over yeah. that album, and we'll talk about her more, but uh, well, she's probably introduced Leonard Cohen to more people than anybody. Yes, uh, Judy, Judy Collins, Collins too. Jo- yeah. Judy Collins probably as well. And every time I try to say Elizabeth Warren, I say Jennifer Warren. Accident. <laughs> the uh, any more connections? I think that's all I've got. That's all I uh, have. I, oh, I've got a Texas connection. Oh, well, okay. I'm excited to hear why we're experts. Let's it's see. Not, it's, it's even closer to home than he. Uh, Roscoe Beck. Yeah, he does a lot of. He's was the touring bass player for um, Leonard Cohen. And he is does a lot of the arrangements on this album, and he is actually a he's from, a res- he's from Austin. He's from this neighborhood. He and my his son and uh, my nephew played uh, baseball together. He's from Brentwood. He's in the Brent from the Brentwood area. So, uh, just real quick, since we're talking about um, that gentleman, I wonder if his dogs ever peed in my yard. <laughs> uh, just because we're talking about him. Um, so right before the album we're talking about, right before I'm Your Man came out, um, Jennifer Warren's did a tribute album. Famous Blue Raincoat. Famous Blue Raincoat. And uh, Leonard Cohen had given her two songs off of this album to do that he had done. And uh, and um, Roscoe Beck had asked him if he had any songs in the hopper that he hadn't recorded yet. So he sent him, uh, first we take Manhattan and there ain't no cure for love. And she recorded both of those. Her version of First We Take Manhattan has Stevie Ray Vaughan on it. So there's another connection. If you want to kind of wow. do connection that is, once removed or whatever. That is a, a That's great amazing. format for him. They sentence me to 20 years of boredom but trying to change and the song and the song sounds significantly different than the Leonard Cohen one obviously and his guitar is all over it yeah which is a good thing ladies and gentlemen yeah uh you know uh where the name uh, famous blue raincoat came from nope well when he was young he went out and bought this really fancy raincoat that he was proud of <laughs> That's funny. I, I guess it was when he was in London. Uh, no, that's right. He was in London, and it was raining all the time, and he went and got this. You know, one of the things from... Uh, London his, fog uh, raincoat, I guess. Well, why isn't it called fancy blue raincoat, then? Yeah. I think he wanted it to be famous. Um, the uh, <laughs> could have been fabulous if another, <laughs> another artist, if, if it was a glam rock album. Um, yeah. the, the thing about Leonard Cohen is... His family uh, had a very, very fancy clothing store. Yeah, his dad was a clothier. Yeah, and they say from the time he was old enough to put clothes on, he was always dressing to the nines and would uh, 
always wear a suit whenever it was possible he would wear a suit. Well, except for when he went, wore buckskins, but we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, buckskin. Um. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, so he's Canadian. Shout out to our Canadian. Yep. French Canadian. I think this pick came from JM shortly after JM returned. Oh, he did Bob. see there was a giant mural of Leonard Cohen That's in Montreal right. when you were up there, right? That it you was, sent us a yeah, picture which, of. Which I yeah, I was uh, <laughs> I, I knew I was going to Montreal, so maybe that's Well, and I think you sent us that picture and said, I know what my next pick is. <laughs> oh yeah, I did do it. Yeah, so, maybe that's what that picture. Yeah. <laughs> inspired by that. Yeah, yeah he was he that's was a famous picture, by the way. He was born in Westmont like Westmont, Quebec. And it's an uh, it's an oddity because it's an English speaking city. Yeah, in Quebec, in the island of Mon- uh, uh, in Montreal. Yeah, um, the and, island of Montreal. <laughs> and he was it's, as uh, as uh, Doug mentioned, his dad was a clothier, but he's born into a middle class Jewish family. His mother was the daughter of an author, rabbi, and Talmudic scholar. So his Jewish heritage and religion were very much a part of who he was growing up. Well, he was in the biography. It describes him. His family was Jewish royalty. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, um, that was a big, strong Jewish community. Well, he went, the synagogue he went to was one his grandfather helped build. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. They were, they were kind of the, from the time he was little, he was. It was impressed upon him that he was a Levite, yeah. and in the uh-huh. priestly class of uh, of uh, Israel. Yeah. So he's it, one of the things anybody's listened to his albums. He cannot put out an album without quoting the Bible. Yeah, he's yeah. well. He's very sp- very spiritual in his in his lyrics. I I've got a question for you. I Doug, since you seem to. You seem to be a little bit more versed in his early life. He learned flamenco guitar when he was young. Some guy taught him, or he would, I guess, meet him at, in a at a tennis court around his house. But I don't know who this guy was, how he met him, or anything like that. Do you know anything about that? He was, uh, he was, he didn't teach him. He wasn't good enough to learn uh, flamenco guitar. Okay, yet, but he taught him the chords. Okay, yeah. and Leonard Cohen says those are the same chords I've used for my whole career. And this is uh, this is a guy who was in the uh, neighborhood, and one day he didn't come, and it was because he died. Oh, jeez. I can't recall why he died. It may have been some drug-related thing. I, I can't remember. Well, but, back up a little bit. He Leonard Cohen was playing in bands at this point. Not not when he was learning guitar, was he? No, yeah. He, he had learned guitar, and he was playing in like some teenage knockoff band that but they weren't really, they had absolutely no idea where, where they were going to go. And then this guy kind of showed up. Okay. And uh, Leonard Cohen at this point decided, well, I'm going to switch this guy showing him the flamenco stuff. So he went out and bought a classical guitar. And that's when and he, that's when he started. And by, I've seen him play. He is actually a very good. No, well, you can tell listening to his early albums. Yeah. And even on this album, I, there's a good flamenco guitar. I'm assuming is him playing yeah. it. Yeah. Um, Anyway, he ends up going to, I don't know if what we were kind of skipping ahead, but he ends up going to McGill University when he's 17 years old. Yeah. And at that point, he's studying English. That's because let's, he, he was not initially a musician. He was a poet. No, right. This is the um, first person that we've talked about that achieved uh, success in prior. a different area. Yeah. And yeah. in, if he, had, if he had, success. If, yeah. he, if he had stayed a writer and a poet, 
we would probably know of him exclusively from that. Right. And uh, it's and, and we're yeah. not talking about a dabbler. Right. We're talking about a large number of books, some of them highly regarded. Um, uh, some One of, of his books, uh, I can't, it, it, that novel is... His first novel. His first novel is right. one of, is regarded. It, at one point, they thought it was one of the greatest pieces of literature to come out of that part of Canada, ever. And we're we're talking about a long time before what his first collection of poetry, his first publication was. Uh, let's compare mythologies. Yeah, and that's and that was 1956. Well, yeah. we're jumping ahead a little bit because. Prior to him, and that was after he graduated, I think, from McGill. But before that, he actually did dabble in a band that had some renown, and that was the Buckskin Boys. That's why we brought up Buckskin earlier. <laughs> so it was about a year or two after he enters McGill. Um, he joins his friend, this guy named Mike Dodman, on rhythm, guitar, and harmonica, and a friend of Dodman's named Terry Davis, who's on the bucket bass. And this is, by all accounts, a country band. They all had buckskin jackets. So that's why they're called the Buckskin Boys, because of that. <laughs> they just happened to have, uh, that's one thing they had in common. Well, and at the time in Montreal, square dancing was a big thing, believe it or not. So they had a pretty big social, you know, this is a big social activity. They had a pretty good calendar. They would play these dances. They played, you know, in high school basements, high school or church basements, high school auditoriums. And they played stuff like Turkey and the Star or whatever. Um, I got a great picture I'm going to put on the website of the three of them. That's pretty, pretty fantastic. All in there buckskin but here's a review from 1954 from a performance they played at high school it says uh the square dance was a success in every possible way the buckskin boys who supplied the music and instructed the dancers in different sets and their leader who did such a wonderful job calling certainly made sure a good time was had by all the evening was a bustle of excitement and fun from beginning to end <laughs> so there you go that sounds like something out of a society the page, popular yeah. buckskin boys I've had, i haven't had a bustle of excitement in a long time <laughs> anyway well, you know, he, he credits um his love of music from his mother because he would take a guitar with him. He, he started playing guitar at a fairly young age, but his mom was really into music and really into singing. And so he would walk with her to, to restaurants and, and just every now and then they would just burst into song and he would have his, his guitar with her with him. And uh, so he, he has very heaps high praise on his mom for kind of developing his um, love of performing, even though it, it was a reluctant love well, of well, and, performing. And she would sing around the house constantly, and yeah. she was very important to him because he lost his father when he was nine. Yeah. So that, that was a big deal. He also talks about the influence of synagogue music in general. Like that had an impact of an impact on him as well, probably on various levels, not just musically, but you know, symbolically and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, But as Doug mentioned, he's uh, he gets his first book published. Um, He actually went to Columbia university for a little while. Yeah. He was as a kind of a student teacher. Yeah. But he, he decides that that's not for him and he leaves and moves, moves across the pond in 1959. Yeah. To the UK, and then he eventually ends up where, Doug? In Hydra. <laughs> and this, I, <laughs> this is a small island where uh, you 
<laughs> it's pretty isolated from everything else, and apparently it was very inexpensive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He had, he had like a three-story house for nothing, I think. He had some. Uh, he had some funding from the Canadian government for yeah. arts, and yeah. they paid for him to go. He was able to live there for almost nothing, and he was. Uh, it sounds met. like a great existence because he had someone cleaning up and cooking for him, and everybody on the island was just sitting around being an artist. And yeah, and where there was it, there were some attractive women that would come. Along. Who did he meet? One of whom was Suzanne. She was dating someone else when they met, and uh, <laughs> it's such a weird deal. And he just. Stepped right. In. He's very confident, and just, yeah, he did well. I mean, he was class president of his high school. Yeah, he was ours was a dork, <laughs> um, and he was at McGill. He was in some sort of debate, like had a debate or something. Like he obviously he's a, a very astute guy. No, there was a lot of. Um, I would I would say that the people living on Hydra did not have what we in America call conservative traditional values <laughs> regarding uh, the interaction between sexes. And it was really hard to get your head around how these couples were able to maintain any kind of relationship, but it was a profitable time for him. He, he published a poetry collection called flowers for Hitler, a novel favorite game and beautiful losers. Oh yeah. Beautiful losers is the one. Yeah. Well, yeah. And he's on Hydra to what, till about 66, I guess, before he decides mm-hmm. to, Mm-hmm. And he it, goes back to New York where he decides he's going to give music a try. Yeah. Actually, I think the story goes, what I read was he was on his way to Nashville and he ends up getting, getting, uh, kind of laid about in New York. Um, he gets caught up in the folk scene there. He mil- meets Dylan. He meets Phil Oaks. He actually meets Lou Reed. They all know him because of his poetry and his books, yeah. not because of his songs. Yeah. Um, and he decides, uh, you know what? I'm going to stick around here. He moves into the Chelsea Hotel, yeah, where he ends up meeting Janis Joplin, 25-year-old singer from where? Port oh, Arthur, my. Texas. Oh, Port Arthur. She's from Port Arthur. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, um, Port Arthur. He ends up having a one-night stand with her as well. She was, in, she was in New York recording Cheap Thrills at the same time he was working on his first album. So that's And yeah. she was staying at the Chelsea um, well, what's cheap thrills? I'm, I listen to uh, Garth Brooks. I don't know about no cheap thrills. <laughs> Jam, you want to tell the audience about cheap thrills? Cheap thrills was uh, an album that was made by Janis Joplin and the Holding Company. It's uh, well, it wasn't art- Janis Joplin and the Holding Company. Yeah, it was yeah. B- Big it was Brother. Just, it was just Big Brother. Yeah, but she got all over it. And, uh, yeah, it has her. That big hit. Uh, oh, oh, take uh, a little, take a little, little piece, piece of my, of my heart, heart now, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like, I like uh, that album, uh, especially the song she doesn't sing. <laughs> well, it makes sense you'd like that album. It's right in your wheelhouse in terms of years <laughs> of release. Right, yeah. um, but uh, just going back a bit, so um, he meets Mar- this woman named Mary Martin, who uh, he's introduced to her. She's a Canadian. She works for Albert Grossman's agency. And he's, you know, dealing with Van Morrison, uh, you know, various people. She's, um, she actually introduced Dylan to the band. Mary Martin did. Is that right? She's a big deal, right? Uh, She helped, uh, she helped Leonard Cohen's career. Obviously she helped Emmylou Harris's career, but, um, she ends up hooking Leonard Cohen up with this band she's managing called the Stormy Clovers. Stormy Clovers was the first band to record Suzanne, 
and we'll post a version of their their version of it on online but uh yeah they um they actually went in the studio to work on an album of originals and leonard cohen songs because he had started writing songs he wasn't performing he started writing songs yeah and um but her his big break obviously was when mary martin introduced him to an old canadian friend of hers who uh who was always um mentioning cohen in his books and she said i know the guy and so she ends up hooking her or hooking uh leonard cohen up with judy collins judy collins yes yeah and uh and it's funny because she tells he says that he sang to her over the phone that's when I've, she. I've, I've read that too yeah judy collins says he came over to talk to sing some songs to her and was so nervous about it he didn't sing anything that first night he came back this next day and he sang suzanne and and uh, a couple other songs, dress rehearsal rag, the stranger song, and then he came back the following day and sang Suzanne again. And she's like, "There's no doubt, this I got to do this song." So she yeah. ends up recording it for her album called In Mind Life, and uh, that's when he gets the attention of John Hammond, who then decides, "I need to get this guy." Uh, he goes to Cohen's room at the Chelsea Hotel to hear his material and decides to sign him yeah. and john hammond was actually supposed to produce leonard cohen's first album but didn't it was he was replaced by a guy named john simon john hammond has a problem with not understanding what a person's of four yeah uh, he just he signs him. sign him yeah he yeah. finds good talent and then he says oh let's make yeah. a folk album spring senior next deal and, uh, <laughs> well what, we need you to do a doo-wop album I, aretha i think it's worth mentioning that in 67 when the songs that leonard cohen came out Let's set the stage just briefly because I think it's important. It's the end of 67. 67 is a summer of love. Everybody's dealing with psychedelic artwork, songs. I mean, even if an album, we've talked about this before, even if an album in the music inside was not psychedelic, the cover likely was, right? Yeah. This album comes out and it's got this black and or a sepia toned picture of Leonard Cohen on it looking from the 17th century. <laughs> yeah. Just glowering through the cover. Um, and, uh, and, and, of course, the songs aren't psychedelic at all, but nothing about it. It's a folk album, right, for the most part. Um, he really didn't like it very much because he thought the production of it got away from him. Um, he wanted it to be very sparse, and the yeah. producer had different ideas. Um, anyway, it's... it's, a, it's not as bad as it would get. No, it's future. not as bad as it would get. <laughs> yeah. But it's kind of a sign of things to come because this album ends up not doing real well in the States, but Europeans love it. It peaks at number 13 in the UK. It hits number 83, which isn't bad, but 83 in the billboard. But yeah. it's kind of his his story from this point forward is he will sell well in the UK and in Europe, and he will people will totally ignore flat, him yeah. in the US for some yeah. reason. I mean, but he was one of the reasons why he was gaining such a reputation was because of Judy Collins, because not only was she enamored with his songwriting, but she just thought he was a phenomenal person and she, she would, put him on tv too didn't yeah she? she put him on tv she would any chance that she got to tout him or bring him on stage she would do it and uh, she kind of credits herself with getting leonard cohen kind of over his his stage fright because there i think there was one show where he just decided he didn't want to come out and he, so judy collins came out with him and they sang together, and then they were asking for Leonard Cohen to come out afterwards, and that's when he just kind of said, okay, I can do this. Like, okay. 
Well, that's that's interesting. That makes yeah. sense because when he, like I said, when he went to even just to sing in front of her, yeah. he couldn't do it the first time. Yeah. I I, I want to talk briefly about his second album, Songs from a Room. Yep. Uh, it's got that great song. Bird on a Wire. It's got Bird on a Wire on it. It also has a song called The Partisan on it, which is it's just an incredible song. It's caution to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. I have changed my name so often. I've lost my wife and children, but I have many friends. This is just a fantastic song. The other, the other song on that album is The Story of Isaac, which when you talked about the first time you kind of knew who Leonard Cohen was, my introduction to him was this version of that song done by Roy Buchanan and uh, Charlie Daniels that was this kind of lost album that yeah. Roy Buchanan had worked on called The Prophet. And somebody, I think my friend Alan Cross might have said, you got to hear the song. The door, it opened slowly. My father, he came in. I was nine years old. And he stood so tall above me. Blue eyes, they were shining. And his voice was very cold. And he played it for me, and I just, it almost knocked me down. It was just so, I get goosebumps every day. It's hard for me to listen to that song because it's so, it's beautiful and creepy and haunting and everything about it. And then Rory Buchanan's guitar work on it is I know, remarkable. Yeah, he's one of the most underrated guitar players um, ever. But the, the other interesting thing about this album, Doug, your favorite person was supposed to produce it initially, David Crosby. <laughs> Can I have some of your purple berries? But uh, that didn't work out. So wow, and he started recording it in Hollywood. He ends up moving to Nashville. This album did a little better in the U.S. than the last one. It peaked at number sixty-three. It peaked at number two on the U.K. charts. Um, but then the third album, "Songs of Love and Hate," comes out. It does. It only reached number forty-five. Still number four in the U.K., but number forty-five in. In the U.S., and that's the one with the famous blue raincoat song on it. By with a lock of your hair She said that you gave it to her That night that you planned to go clear Well, then the, the, the exposing to a wider audience was the movie... McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which had his songs in it, yeah, right, like almost like, and it, it's, you know, I hate to say this, I've never seen that movie, uh, and it's supposed to be, uh, is it supposed to be good? It's supposed to be really good, and it's mm. supposed to the music is supposed to be a huge part of it. It's one of the say, first. If you take the music out, the movie would stop working. Yeah, that's what oh, I've really? heard. Yeah, that, huh. and it's one of those things like uh, Easy Rider or something where the music is just so much a part of the. <laughs> we were just talking about Easy Rider yeah. earlier. <laughs> Uh, where the music is so much a part of the film that if you take the music out of it, it's just huh. not not so good. Like Purple Rain. <laughs> <laughs> or The Wall. Or The Wall, yeah. <laughs> um, well, his next album, the only, uh, next album is New Skin for the Old Ceremony, which is a lovely title. Uh, it was released in 74. That album contains Chelsea Hotel, the song Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2, which is a song he wrote about his affair with Janis Joplin. 
Hmm. So interesting. The, uh, oh, new skin for an old ceremony sounds like circumcision. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Maybe it does, but he's Jewish. <laughs> um, and then there's a three year break before he comes before this next album we have to talk about for various reasons, which is Death of a Ladies Man, which yeah. was. So one of the things the that album cover looks like an album cover I would choose. So he looks like he looks like um, what the the world's most interesting man. That's funny. What's interesting about this is the album he did with Phil Spector, and this yeah. is this is what's funny about this is this happened a lot around this time was labels who didn't know what to do with their artists they would grab Phil Spector. No, yeah, I just I mean the Ramones like, yeah. did an album with yeah. Phil Spector. You know, <laughs> hey, we don't know what to do. Throw Phil, you know, Phil Spector out of. I don't know that I could pick. Uh, okay, Bob Dylan and Tom Waits. But other than those two, I don't think you can pick bands better not to work with Phil Spector than the Ramones and Leonard Cohen. Well, you say that, but I think end of, a, yeah, end of a Century, century is, a, is, is a fantastic album in comparison to this monstrosity of Death of a Ladies Man. Uh, Makes no sense. But this was also of course, when... Uh, the Ramones were doing an old kind of rock and roll. Yeah. It's more similar to what it Phil does. Spector got famous doing. But he did the same thing. He did. Well, I think he went actually first. So the problem with Phil Spector, he was a lunatic. And, uh, and he was armed a lot. And so he would hold people hostage in the studio. By the time the Ramones got to him, he was actually holding people hostage in his home. But I believe when they were producing this, or when they were recording Death of the Ladies Man, Phil Spector locked him down in the studio at gunpoint at one point. Um, he also absconded, absconded with the with the I mean, tapes, yeah, the tapes yeah. and mixed it himself. Leonard Cohen had no yeah. say over what the final mix of the album was going to sound like. Um but it's strange because this was also when um, I guess they he kind of found uh, Leonard or Phil Spector found Leonard Cohen at kind of a vulnerable time because Leonard Cohen was actually was trying to get back into the music scene. He was trying to get kind of away from the folk uh, songs that he was known for. He was actually working with a band, and that band was the one that was actually backing him up on this. On this album, the death of a ladies' man, but well, it's 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 interesting because it seemed to come out to universal damnation when it was released. Yeah. Critics hated it. Yeah, uh, Rolling Stone at the time said called it Leonard Cohen's doo wop nightmare. Yeah, and said too much of the record sounds like the world's most flamboyant extrovert producing and arranging the world's most fatalist introvert. <laughs> 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 Which is probably it may be one of the few times Leonard, that the Marsh? Rolling Stone actually got it right. Uh, they get um, it right in the that back then they were getting it right. But, all right, but this album hit number thirty. This yeah. is what's interesting. It hit number thirty five in the UK. It's the first album that fails to chart in the US. However, shout out to our fans in Sweden. It's Cohen's best selling album in Sweden. It hit number eight in Sweden. Well, <laughs> they loved they it. They probably found something in there we haven't noticed yet. Yeah. Um, but because of that, he decides, as you're saying, Jam, he was trying to branch out a little bit, but this kind of spooked yeah, him. That spooked so, him. Yeah. So he kind of dropped out. Right. For a while. And then yeah. when he goes into studio to record 1979's recent songs, he decides he's going to kind of take a little bit of a back to the folk type of stylings. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit different, um, but it's still a little bit toned. I mean, how can you not be toned down from Phil Spector, right? Right. <laughs> um, and he works with, uh, he decides to produce that album himself for the first time, but he gets some assistance from this guy named Henry Louie, who is a he German came. guy who had worked with Joni Mitchell. Um, 
became a really kind of his right hand man for a long time. And it's and he also gets Jennifer Warren's to sing backing vocals. Yeah, on this Ooh, album, it, which becomes a uh, a big, very lucrative or uh, a, a fortuitous decision. a fortuitous decision. To get. She is a fan, and and of course you don't if you, if you don't know who she is, she sang "Up Where We Belong" with um, Joe Cocker. which I think won a Grammy. Well, Joe Cocker is also somebody who's recorded a lot of Leonard Cohen songs. Yeah. As well. And uh, she, she did also that. is a senator from Massachusetts. <laughs> She's got a wonderful voice. Oh, my she God. Does. I've got her uh, famous blue raincoat over there somewhere. I bet yeah. it's in the W's. Um, probably. Yeah. Um, but this is, the, this is the first album of his that fails to chart in the U.K., so even though it's hmm. a step in the away from, I don't know if he had been away for so long because this is a three year hiatus from his last album, yeah. or two year hiatus, or if because people had it still had a bad taste in their mouth after the Phil Spector debacle, but doesn't chart in the U.S. or the U.K. and he takes five years off after that, and that's when we get various positions, which is the album we talked about already, where he does not it does not even get released in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and it's got. Um, Hallelujah on it. And Jennifer Warren's getting double billed. It goes like this. The fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing. This is also the album where he starts to dabble in a little bit more of a modern sound. The mm-hmm. keyboards start to show up a little bit more. Yeah. Who's playing bass Sin on bass. that? Yeah, I think the synthesizer's playing bass on that. <laughs> no surprise. Yeah. Is this a Casio or a Techniques that he's playing on this uh, one? Or is that sure. the next album we uh, get might to that be point? The Techniques might be the next one. <laughs> that was a short-lived and unfortunate period in music history. Anyway. Anyway, so it's between that album and the one we're talking about where... The uh, Jennifer Warren's um, tribute album comes out and uh, has a couple of songs, as I said before, off of I'm Your, I'm Your Man. I, I want to, again, I want to say a couple of things before we start. No. Uh, again, I don't hate Leonard Cohen. So anything <laughs> I say from this point forward needs to be taken to understand that. Uh, I think his first couple albums are musically and lyrically just amazing they're haunting they're beautiful i've said all this already um i am gonna rest on jm to explain to me because this what we asked earlier why do we pick this album i don't get i just want up front say i don't get a lot of the things on this album and I, i'm really looking forward to you helping me through that jam because i did not have the same sort of reaction that i've had with other albums i I've admitted I did not look forward to listening to that Lou Reed album and I ended up giving a 4.8. Yeah. 
Doug has said routinely he tries to listen to albums 20 times at least, and I've had very little problems doing that with other albums. This album, it was hard for me to do that on. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your take on it because I, I I don't want to I don't want to be one of these guys that just says you know there's that old adage if you don't have anything good to say don't say anything at all I want to have a conversation about it but I want to understand it I I feel like it's me because critics love this album yeah and, they love um, it okay so I I will I'll give my you're gonna kind pick of, up that gauntlet I'll pick up the gauntlet after the after after we go through the album. Well, before we talk about the songs, I want to talk about the use of synthesizers on this. Okay. The, are there synthesizers on this album? <laughs> That's yes, but it's not just they're not just any synthesizers. JM, can you explain what he what synthesizers are used on a good chunk of this album? It's that techniques uh when they were first trying to get onto their uh I mean, I could get really boring on it, but they... It's uh, its one of those synthesizers where you could push a button and get a rhythm going, like it right. play the marimba or however you say that. You hit it and it would go, yeah. boop, 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 you know. It, it made a, a lot of people believe they were musicians. That's exact. And Leonard Cohen admits and that techniques. he was messing around with this stuff for the last couple of years. And I actually saw Leonard Cohen on this tour, and he basically said he brought that up he said it's amazing what these little machines can do and how they can help you compose and uh, he makes no he made no no bones well about you it can, you can see him play some of these songs many 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 years later and it's still the same production yeah that's exactly. what blew my mind yeah i thought you know this is a little bit like what happened to little steven on his second album yeah voice of america where he tried to shrink his band down, probably for touring expenses, and he got into a lot of electric drums and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, he says that what he was trying to do was come up with rhythms that he couldn't play on the guitar. So he'd had this little, I, yeah, for lack he, of a better to- term, I'm going to say this little toy keyboard because that's essentially the techniques. What it was because I he he showed it and techniques at that time they were doing. Um, amplifiers and stuff, but they did come out with a keyboard that right. did have a whole lot of. It was wasn't necessarily cheap, but it was cheap sounding. Cheap sounding, <laughs> yeah. and it had a whole lot of embedded rhythm stuff. Well, in you it. know, this is this is association. Um, these sounds we associate with really bad music. Yeah. So some of it's some, some of, of it, it is, exactly. Even when it came out, I remember thinking, so, I associate this with t- bad. T- yeah, so I want to say two things about that. One is, he's been asked if that was an attempt to get into the 80s marketplace. This album came out in 1988. This was way beyond this being something that people, right? I mean, yeah. by the time 1988, that's the other thing. There's some of the keyboard sounds on this album sound about five years beyond their date. Because it seems like that's the, the that what sound. What did you expect him to be? behind on that sort of thing <laughs> i guess so yeah i guess so but it is funny that you know how old it, was he at this point oh i don't know how old was he he was born in 34 right yeah so he was 54 at this point 54 55 yeah he's like he's like you know he's like me trying to look at the cell at my at yeah, a new cell like, phone with my daughter tell us, tell yeah. us about your new rap album yeah. <laughs> um Anyway, I just, uh, you know, again, uh, we talked about his voice. I think his voice works on a lot of these songs, even if I don't like the instrumentation of it. His voice is not the problem to me on this at all. Um, I would say neither of the lyrics, but there's a couple that maybe it is. But in general, I just wanted to say that 
I, I wanted to get that up front. Also, he says in several interviews that this album is not to be taken seriously. Like, there's supposed to be a sense of humor about it. Well, he's got a, yeah. He, well, the, the cover. Album cover, he's holding a banana. He's eating a banana. Yeah. Uh, and this is, gr- this is a great, I read this too. He said, this is his description of the album cover. He goes, here's this cool looking guy in shades and a nice suit. He seems to have a grip on things, an idea of himself. And suddenly it occurred to me that everybody's dilemma, it's everybody's dilemma. At times we think we're the coolest. What everybody else sees is a guy with his mouth full of a banana, which I thought was pretty funny. So even though there's kind of a sinister sound to a lot of these songs because of the keys and the way his voice is, he says that it's an album that does not take itself seriously. I know, I, and I, and tongue... that's one of the things I love about this album. Okay. It does not seem You're going like to have to explain that to me because I, okay. I don't get the joke. So, Okay. Anyway. I think that you also got to put it a little bit in the context of the times. And you got to look at the age of the guy singing it. So, you know, the times, what James said about the times is extremely important for understanding this album. Yeah. With the references. And Cohen is not open about what a lot of these songs are about. In fact, there's and one I think I've misinterpreted. The first totally. one? Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll get to that, because I think you did, the last time we talked about it, you guys said something, and I couldn't find anything that backed up what you said about right. it. So yeah. So let's, you, should we go ahead and get started? Yeah, let's go ahead we, and get started. We said it was about that movie Blackfish with the whales <laughs> killing the divers. <laughs> no. Oh. So uh, the first song, side one, first song, uh, First We Take Manhattan. First, we take Manhattan Then we take Berlin I'm guided by a signal in the heavens I'm guided I thought this song was about the fashion industry. I really, not because according to Leonard Cohen. I know. It is. There's I, good I, reason to think that. I know. I, mean, I don't like your fashion business, Mr. Manhattan, Berlin. What the hell? First, he talks, we'll take of, Man- he talks that, about uh, birthmarks and. Yeah. 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 Well, and uh, the other, I hear other people have said that they think it's about the music industry. I've heard that. I've, I've heard that too. And. Um, but he says it's about. He says it's about terror. Terrorism. Just blank, just blanket just, terror. Just terrorism. There's like, I, uh, I don't like the birthmark and, on your skin. I don't like what your fashion. Well, and he also mystery. says something very odd about terrorism. He says uh, that it's something he sort of admires. Not the outcome, not the destruction, huh. but the fact that the there, are, there are no alibis. Yeah, the mindset. No compromises, no alibis. He says he finds that concept very attractive. He does not like how it manifests itself physically, huh. but he thinks that he... And he's not necessarily saying it's a good thing. He just says he's, it's, he finds it attractive. Um, this is not... These keyboards are Jeff Fisher, not... Yeah. Well, let, let me finish about okay. the terrorism because... Okay. There's more to that quote. He's he's into these mental terrorists. Right. And who and does he, he list? describes Jesus, Marx, Freud, and Einstein, which all tore down something and and replaced it or tried to tear down something. But they all four have something else in common. They like fashion. They're uh, all they're all Jewish. They're all Jewish, yeah. So huh. um 
Although I think he's, I think what he's talking about in that terrorism quote is, you could classify those guys as terrorists because they come and blow up what was already. He there. calls them psychic terrorists. Right. Is the yeah. term he yeah. uses when he's describing them. So, ladies and gentlemen, don't uh, go out in the streets and protest uh, this song. <laughs> yeah, I, I. That's one of the things I like. When okay, uh, the uh, monkey and the plywood violin. I mean, I, I don't under, all uh, that just plywood sounds to, violin. <laughs> to me, it's just like here is this. It's the song sounds so menacing. It sounds like he's uh, like a, a bad guy looking well, down I, I and put about down to wreak havoc. That this is uh, one of the best uh, in the in the genre of James Bond villain. Music. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, but it's it, again, it doesn't take itself. That's why I can't take it seriously. I don't uh, take it. We also should say he didn't know what it was about yeah. when it first came out. He yeah. did come up. I right. guess this was later, and he said, "I guess it's about terrorism." Well, when he when he gave it to Roscoe Beck for that famous Blue Raincoat album, uh, Beck says he listened to it and he was just stunned by. It. He's like, "It's so synthesized. It sounds like Euro disco. What is this?" It kind of yeah. blew him away. Um, but uh, as I was saying, that keyboards are Jeff Fisher. Yeah, he does everything. He's yeah. a whole backing and and for the whole band. Cohen says he was stuck musically on this song for a while until he until Jeff Fisher started working it out, and he said what did it for him. What he what sold him on it was it sounded like an old like an electronic version of Sergio Leone music, like this spaghetti western type of thing, huh. which added this kind of. St- Almost cinematic element. Yeah, it's I can, that, I can there's see that. that. Yeah. It's it's big and it's sweeping, and I I get pictures of black and white things moving fast, and I I think it's a fantastic song. I really like it. Um, I like the covers of it. His voice is perfect. His for voice this. is fantastic. I just wish that we had another production. You're huh. talking about that, so. I love the production on it. I, I, Are you I talking was, about the production or the instrumentation behind it? Um, well, I put instrumentation under production. I'd say that's a part of production. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just talking. You could say it's muddy sounding or whatever, but you're talking I don't about think it's muddy. Sounding. No, no, you're talking it's, about it's the, very you're talking about yeah. the the instrumentation, the way the heavy I'd keyboard say, let's, kind of. Let's back off the keyboards. Maybe hmm. we put a big fat cello in there or something. Um, I hear I hear something different like that. Well, you yeah. listen to Jennifer yeah. Warren's version of it, and it's it's <laughs> it's in my opinion better than this one. It's I. It's I, hard for me to it's hard for me to separate. And you say this is a a good song. I, I get that. It's hard for me to separate it when every time it's on, I can't wait for it to be over with because the instrumentation of it is just so unappealing to me. Well, I understand that, and uh, I tell you. Think about this for a moment. There's a lot of energy in this song. There is. It's 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 almost like I can see the hammers marching in uh, from the wall. From, from the, the wall. wall. Yeah. I can see. Oh, that's something. true. It is a sinister. It is a sinister, yeah. foreboding. I mean, I will yeah. get get you all of I that. I could stuff. see it in the. Uh, it wouldn't. The topic wouldn't be appropriate, but I could see it in the. Uh, like that black and white film of 1984 they made not too I mean not too long ago it was in, in 1984 the yeah but uh, the one with John all, Hurt it was all it fits all of that and uh, I don't associate the word energy with Leonard Cohen but he he has energy here and this may be the first time he's had it uh, 
you know, normally songs that have this sort of instrumentation, which is nothing but synthesizers. I mean, there is no, there's no drums, there's no bass. Everything is, is, is synthesized. That's the kind of stuff like the Pet Shop Boys, all that sort of, just used to leave me completely cold. And I think the reason why I was kind of blown away by this song uh, is the way that Leonard Cohen's voice comes in. It's not that 80s voice. It's not that, it's it's almost like, hey, <laughs> here I am in the 80s, but I'm also a throwback to the, you know, the 50s. I'm uh, like the Edward R. Murrow kind of delivering the news kind of thing. Um, it, it, it's just, that's a, I think that that, and I always get into that dichotomy kind of stuff. Whenever you can mix two genres together and well, make it something I, different. I'm going to say then, bringing that up, it, it how is it dissimilar then to something that Doug texted us this week, which is, um, who was it doing? Pat Boone. Pat Boone doing Crazy Train. You got Pat Boone <laughs> singing Crazy Train. How, I mean, it's, that's obviously a joke. It was. Yeah. A and he wore, he wore the... Yeah, wore the leather and everything. Yeah, I know. and I get that. And Leonard Cohen, while while is not making a joke, says tongue firmly planted in cheek. Um, again, I I get his vocals are fine on this song. I get all that. Um, Did he say tongue firmly in cheek on this song or on the album? On the album, because the there's yeah. there's some other places where it's much up. Yeah, like when obviously. he talks about being born with a golden, golden voice. voice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't. It's one of those things that to me shouldn't be successful. It kind of goes into that. Uh, talking heads kind of thing where I'm not taking myself seriously, but you know, I'm kind of above all of this, but look at you guys, look at you silly people. Like, look how silly you are into your, your fashion. And I'm going to put all these uh, electronic stuff behind it. Like what's going on on a, on a runway. And you get that kind of, to me, you get, you guys are talking about, you know, marching hammers and stuff. I'm, I'm thinking about, people looking completely ridiculous on a runway. fashion stage. You well, know. you know runway. who hates all that are the terrorists that <laughs> flew into our building. So, yeah. the, and then I just, I, I can't not talk about one of the big distinctions between the Jennifer Warren's version and this is that bridge where the backup singers sing. Yeah. I, I hate that. I hate oh, it. Oh, I think do? it's I, great. I think it, I it. Works I think it's brilliant I, for I think us it's to get a break from yes. his voice. I, and yes. I hate it because this it makes again this song sounds so dated to me. It sounds so dated, and I, I don't. A, but I almost think that was a point, even when it was recorded. Again, I don't get the joke. Then I don't get it. What's the point of making a song sounding dated? I don't get it. So we'll beg, we'll just agree to disagree, as they say on this. <laughs> Do you think it sounded dated when it came out? Yes, because it's 1988. I don't think there was a whole lot of stuff that I think sounded it, I, this and I think stuck that was in the 80s. I think that was intentional. Again, I. I'm just. I don't know. I, I'm dense, I like but I guess. saw again. I saw him I on this tour, and it was not it, the 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 tour was not just synthesizers and and electronic drums. It was. They have a keytar. No keytar. Well, that's a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. I won't go to a show without a keytar. <laughs> All right. All right, Tony, I'm glad we uh, transferred your opinion on this song so profoundly. <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate, I really do appreciate what JM said, because it does make me think about things a little differently. I, it's just so hard for me to, I, 
You can ask my wife this. If we're in a restaurant eating and there's some song I don't like, even just barely under the, the roar of the people <laughs> talking, I can't, I can't enjoy myself. It yeah. takes me out of the moment. So I, I understand and I appreciate what JM says about this song and looking at it that way. But the, the, the keyboards are just so unappealing. You, you know, to that's me. what I gave up for Lent last year. Keyboards? No. Expressing myself when a song came on that I hated. Moving on to the next song. Ain't No Cure for Love, song number two, side one. There ain't no cure, there ain't no cure, there ain't no cure for love. I'm aching for you, baby. If this is purposeful, and since it's Cohen, I think it is, I think this is uh, pretty brilliant. I do too. Uh, so you guys are saying something that bothers me a little bit, which is that you've got to be on the in on the joke before you can listen to this, and the casual listener isn't going to be. Well, they're not, and I wasn't. Okay. I, I my notes when I first listened to it, and my notes now are very different. My first note was, "Why is he singing this? Why isn't this written for somebody else?" Mm-hmm. And uh, get it off this album, please. It's too cutesy. Yeah. It's, and then you find out what it's about. And then well, you go, oh, he's just being ironic well, as what, he can be. What he yeah. says about the song, and you may have seen this as well, is it's, it, there's two levels to it. There's Definitely. a surface level where you can just listen to it. And then there's this beneath the surface level, which is in some ways sort of, as he says, based on almost on theology to a certain extent and the idea of love being a sacrifice and and, yeah. and Jesus actually makes an a, a makes a an appearance at the end of the song and well he's a he's uh for a Jewish guy he's fascinated with the New Testament yeah. well with Christianity in general I think but yeah, yeah. well a lot of um, a lot of the New Testament's about Christianity but I, it's got one of my favorite lines in any song ever written <laughs> it's I call to you I call to you but I don't call soft enough I'm not going to knock this guy's lyrics. The guy's I mean, lyrics are, are always, we, for the most part, great. Yeah. We have not um, talked about the what many people think are talking about with this song, and I think even Leonard Cohen was. Uh, you know where it came from originally, the idea. I do not. Once you know this, it will change the song completely. Okay, please. This was a advertisement for condoms oh and it says there's no cure this is 1988 right the height of the AIDS. yeah yeah if you read these lyrics again you start did he write it for that or that was just a tagline that he took well (laughs) i think it was on his mind and when you read these lyrics i have trouble not um Huh. Not seeing the song about uh, AIDS, and a lot of other people have that say. He did say in one of the interviews I read about this album that it does deal with AIDS, and so I was like, where the hell is AIDS? But maybe this is it. Well, I think it shows up a couple of places, but um, definitely this song. Uh... Well, it's funny because when I, when I read him speaking about this song, he says that this is when he's talking about the two levels. He goes, there's a surface of the song. 
You don't have to go beneath the surface, but if you penetrate the surface and analyze it, it's true and correct, even theologically. Jesus appears in the last line because he knew that the only way to love was to sacrifice. He knew, he knows that if you love, your love will be will take a wound. And then he says, the song has a sense of humor because it's better to say those kinds of things as a joke than to rub it in somebody's nose. God. So I, you know, none, he never mentions AIDS. It's interesting that you brought that up. I, I do, I do find that fascinating. Well, um, yeah, I think I think what you just said about the song is also true. Yeah, and yeah. I think when you're talking about someone who writes serious lyrics, mm-hmm. you can't ask them to only have one meaning. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, it's going. It's again like we talked about with Van Morrison. He's spilling what he's carrying, and he's got these things on his mind. And uh, I don't, I don't think if we were wise, we would try to nail it down too yeah. much. But I, one of the things I always go back to the, the way that the song was done and, and the delivery. I love his his vocals are so deadpan on it. Even though they're a little bit more lively than he than on some of his other songs on this album, but then those uh, background singers come in and almost do this angelic thing behind them. I don't mind the background singers on I this. I love song. the background. I don't love them. I just don't mind them. I, I, I they seem to fit them. better on yeah. this song than the other one. You know what? Uh, I, I I I gotta I gotta take a step back and say that I'm being a little hypocritical about some of the stuff on this album because. Uh, this song in particular reminded me of an album that came out a little bit before this called called um, Radio Chaos by Roger Waters, where Waters decided to kind of take a more modern approach. It's a very keyboard-heavy ha- ha- uh, album. There's a lot of the same sort of background singing, female background singers, came, you know, taking, taking mm-hmm. turns singing. Mm-hmm. This song reminded me a lot of that Waters album that I loved when it came out and now have a hard time listening to it today. So, uh, not... You know, whatever. So I, 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 I guess what I'm saying is maybe I would have been okay with this album had I known about it in 87. Well, I think that one of the, I, Well, I, that may be a big difference because both JM and I, uh, I heard this song when it came out. Um, I did too. I didn't know anything off this. This is a fir- my first go. And when I put it on the first time, <laughs> the reason is funny. I played, I had to play some old Leonard Cohen for my daughters because I was listening around the house. She goes, what in the world are you listening to, Dad? <laughs> And then I played, I played Suzanne and my 14 year old ran and got, got her, her phone and said, I know this song. I go, you know this song? And she had a French version of it that she had been, that was on her iPad or her yeah. phone that she'd been listening yeah. to a French version of Suzanne. So anyway, that's a little brief aside. Sorry. But yeah, I think that probably has a lot to do with it is that you guys have a little bit deeper history. This is me coming out of the blue listening to this and, and it sounds just initially just way yeah it does you know, if, if, if you heard it in the middle of the of the time when it came out in that environment yeah yeah it's it's to me it reminds you when you're trying to pick out a color for your room or your house you right know, you take the sample and you like it in the store then you come home and you paint the wall mm-hmm. it doesn't look anything right. like the same color right. because of what's it around what's around it right yeah. you know the doctors working day and night but they, they'll never, ever find a cure for love mm. or a vaccine. <laughs> Although I think they, they've broken some ground on that. They have. Yeah. There was some good news about a week or two ago. Yep. All right. 
Okay, moving on to song. Good thing this thing only has uh, eight songs. <laughs> yeah. Time we're putting into them. Uh, number three, everybody knows, which is co-written by Sharon Robinson. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. Everybody knows the war is over. Everybody knows the good guys lost. Everybody knows the fight was fixed. Um, this, this may be the first time he gets into a a uh, level of production that uh, I I am not distracted by some things. I well, love that ood that goes through this whole. That was just a stroke of a, like a southern Asian instrument, hmm. um, Middle East instrument. That's just. Um, I think it's from Pakistan, actually. But it's a yeah. It's just a, it really I think helps this song move along. It's got all those weird synthesizers and all that, and then you just have this folk instrument that's three thousand years old jumping in the middle of it. And, and I think uh, it's it's just like a mendacious delivery by going on this. One. I I I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I think that there's uh, references to AIDS in this song too. Really, where? Um, Everybody knows that. Everyone knows the dice are loaded. Everyone rolls with their fingers crossed. I think that's just a fatal. He's talking about this overall fatalism of this song. I think it is too. Well, I think um, I wouldn't argue against that. I'm. I'm just saying. uh, I mean, there's so many people you just had to meet without clothes. Yeah. Without. uh, Without your clothes. And uh, I think. It sounds like a man that's thinking about this, not exclusively, but if he starts talking mind, about, yeah. Yeah. if he starts talking about war, it's still inside his head. Uh, everybody knows the naked man and woman are just a shining artifact of the past. Yeah. See, I Every, thought, you know what I thought that was referring everyone to? Everyone knows the scene is dead. You know what I thought the you shiny, the shiny naked man and woman were referring to? This is where my brain goes, is that disc. That's on oh, Voyager. On the Voyager, yeah. Which is all about hope. When did that launch? It was before before this. That disc is all about hope. And so, what does he say after about the shining? What's the line after that? It's a shining artifact of yeah. the past. So that's that's what I thought he was yeah, referring I, to. I, I'm I, probably I, way off, but I don't know. I don't, I, I, that sounds right. <laughs> but, um, but there's a dead scene. The scene is dead, and there's a meter on your bed. So. Well, I, again, I just think that's your 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 that's your clock is ticking. I don't know. I, I get what you're well, saying. It Doug. is your clock is ticking too. Um, God, somebody posted well, he, a picture of a parking meter in a uh, at a graveyard, and it said you should have put in more quarters. And then he's also got the, the thing about essentially that there's a, a deal about racism in here as well. Yeah, and, the rich get rich and the poor get lost. Uh, yeah. yeah, I I don't know. It's just as uh, just a I, when he says the rich get rich. Uh, to me, that's disappointing because uh, he's too good to go to that well-trodden. If he had said it some other way, I would I, like, I like when, he's, but, when he's when he attacks uh, poor, I, I, poor Black Joe still picking cotton yeah, for yeah. your ribbons and your bows. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. What the rich get richer. No, I get you. I like, it seems lazy like for him. It, I get it, you. It, it seems a little bit lazy, but I and I used to think it was lazy, but I like the. The line, the poor get lost. 
I, I think that helps it some. Instead of saying the poor get poorer, it would yeah, have been a complete yeah. disaster. Yeah. And then we're on Calvary again. Yeah. We didn't get, uh, we didn't escape the Bible. All right. So moving on to the title track, I believe. Am I wrong? You are not wrong. Song number four, side one. I'm your man. If you want a partner, take my hand. Or if you want to strike me down in anger, here I stand. I'm your man. If I used to think this was the weakest song on the album. Um, still not one of my favorites, but... Sounds like, wise, sounds it, like a soundtrack version. It sounds like it, the soundtrack to a Western version of Blade Runner to me. <laughs> it sounds like just like a pathetic guy trying to be whatever he can can be to get a partner. Well, he has a quote where he says, no woman wants a guy who begs. And uh, but maybe there's an exception one time. <laughs> <laughs> this was the second single off this album, and it did. Zero. I know. It will. It's, it, it, it's one of the. It, there's. It's probably got the most boring instrumentation. But. Well, it's. Uh, and this is, I'm guessing, just him on his little uh, techniques. Techniques. Yeah. But yeah, it's got that almost <laughs> cheap Vangelis sound going on in the beginning, and you know. You, you want to hear that? It's got that. I agree. This isn't the greatest song. It's not my least favorite. That's coming up but not coming up next but coming up uh but uh i don't know i this is the one song where i get his he's not being serious yeah and i and that has some charm to me in 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 listening to it you know i, I think it's just an observation of what guys will do like, well it's what an, ob, it's an observation of uh, of the fact that guys yeah will do anything anything like it doesn't yeah. you, you name it what do you want me to do? Yeah. I'll become what you want. You, yeah. I'm which your is, man. Which is, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was reading a book on psychology or something, and women will unconsciously um, throw something out to disagree with the guy to see if the guy yeah. will conform to her opinion. And if he does, I mean, there's nothing that causes her to lose interest faster. So, yeah. if you're a young man out there still looking for your bride, do everything uh, different than how it's described in this song. Well, and, and you know that this, given his history, like you were, we were talking before the, the podcast. I mean, his history with he's a ladies' man. man. He, yeah, he knew this. He knew this. Yeah, he was like, not taking this advice. Not, yeah. No, and that's why I said there's a sense of humor to the song that I find charming. It's and. Uh, the, it's well written, and the way he delivers it, it's not. I don't think it's a great song, but uh, it's a great poem. Yeah, yes, it, it is, is a great, great poem. poem. Yeah, yep. yeah. All right, Are we we want to say anything more about that before we flip it over. Uh, pay attention to the lyrics when you listen to this one. Yeah. All right. Okay, so go ahead and flip it over. Flip there. it over. Side two, song one. Take this waltz. There's a piece that was torn from the morning. And it hangs in the gallery of frost. Hey, 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 hey! Take this waltz, take this waltz. 
take this waltz with the clamp on its jaws. Thank God this song is on this album. It's a nice uh, bit of relief. I, I, it is absolutely beautiful. This is my favorite song. This is a song I could listen to over and over again. This may be my favorite song he's ever done. He's ever written. It, it it's just it's a great song, and it's 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 a poem that he translated yeah, by. Well, we I guess we should have talked about. Yeah. Lorca a bit because he's such an influence on on Leonard Cohen. In fact, he named his daughter after him. Yeah. Um, but he was a what a Spanish poet, mm-hmm. a long what the thirties or so. Yeah. Is that when he... Well, he's famous for something else. His um, one time boyfriend was an artist. Pablo Picasso. No, nope. I'm joking. <laughs> Pablo, uh, scratch that jam. <laughs> Who? Uh, was it Salvador Dali? Salvador, Salvador Dali? Dali? Really? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Um, yeah, there's pictures of them together. This this is a poem called Pequeño Valles Viennes. Yes, uh, which means little Viennese waltz. Right. And it is a nice relief, as Tony says. And it's oh. it's basically a, a translation with some liberties. Yeah. He He said it took him 150 hours to translate this. And according to him... One nervous breakdown. <laughs> um, and, and and this was actually released as a single in 1986 for a, tr- a Lorca, a yeah. Federico Garcia Lorca tribute album called Poets in New York. It was a single off of that. And then he rearranged it a bit for this album. And he's added the violin, which is remarkable. And he got Jennifer Warrens to duet with him as well, which is also incredible. He did strike a genius on that. This... Yeah, this song is beautiful. It's it's beautiful. I love it. Um, and I wish the rest of the album was like this, to be honest I, with you. I, I wish this were the last song on the album. Because um, when I, I think the him, last song is good on this. It fits perfectly I, I, I for too, this album. I do too, but I, I wish, I almost think that could have been the first song on side two. But anyway, I saw, when I saw him do this, this is what he closed with. Yeah. And well, it's, everybody got to take a turn, and every, it was just absolutely beautiful. It, it's um, obvious this is something that he feels a lot of emotional attachment yeah, to. Yeah, I mean, just in everything about the presentation of the song, uh, it's it stands out to me. It really stands out to me from everything else on this album. Yeah, well, it's it's just even even though it has its darkness, mm-hmm. there's some light in it too, yeah. and. Uh, Thank God it's a it's a waltz, mm-hmm. and we have new instruments. Yep, and it's elegant. Yep, and he's painting a picture that. It, one of the frustrations for me is I'm not sure how much credit I should give him or Larka. Or, or so, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. What's interesting about this is there's so many different people who have sang his words. The fact that he is able to sing somebody else's words and put this much into it. It's pretty remarkable because he's not known for some guy who's like this great singer, yeah, right? He's I not, mean, not known he's as not an famous for his it, covers, right? Yeah. But this, this, this song is is great. He's great in it. He's great singing it. Oh yeah, it's and it, again, this is this is a poem. Yeah. It's not like a poem. It is a it poem. Is a poem. Yeah. And it's brilliant, brilliant, um, brilliant. There's a yeah. bar where the boys have stopped talking. They've been sentenced to death by the blues. 
for it. Love it. It's a great line. Mm-hmm. It's not, like I said, it's um, it's almost a flawless song. I mean, it, there is a little '80s production. What well, the I I I I? I don't um, mind that. I don't mind that either. Well, I don't mind it. Um, I, that to I was me, we go to say, the boys. It thing. reminds me of my wife so much. <laughs> <laughs> I just uh, the song came on after listening to the first side, and I was like, oh. I, I get this song. This song yeah. instantaneous. It's like, what is the term you use? Accessible is a very accessible song. Yeah. But even upon further listening, it it gets it gets you deeper than it does on on the initial listening. Anyway, yeah. I yeah. I could go on and on about how there's how a much shoulder I like this where song. death comes to cry. <sighs> yep. God, I love that line. That's, oh, <laughs> that's quite a shoulder if you can listen to death cry. And I didn't know death cried. Yeah, but you would think, yeah, death. He's supposed to make people death's cry. not really all that happy. Yeah. That's a bad job, I would think. I think Death's probably depressed. All right. Um... Can we skip the next song, or do we have to talk about it? We have to talk about it. Okay, number two, after this beautiful, brilliant song, we get number two, side two, Jazz Police. I love this song. Oh my god! I, I am just—it is so strange. There is not many songs like this. Uh, luckily, it's short. I love the, the the way that the vocals are swirling around it. Um, he didn't play his vocals. Well, yeah, I didn't play his vocals. But um, I just—it's a uh, Leonard Cohen album. But that's okay. I know. But I, I'm fast. That—that's the thing that fascinates me the most about that song is their. The female backup vocals. I think this is an extremely, extremely courageous song. And I would encourage him to avoid any kind of courage like this in the future. Well, you I don't know why he did it. I don't. He, his band was getting too out there for him. That's not on this. This is earlier. Yeah, but his... his they would was, slip in jazz things, and he would tell them to stop, stop. and they he so said, they called in the jazz police. Yeah, and so he um, wrote something like, I'm just going to throw as many odds, but his, his, augmented sevenths and fifths. As but I his thing about it was, he took it to mean it just be an anti-music industry song. Well, really not industry, but the guys who... And it's an indictment on the people who look over the music industry. Right. They're the jazz police. They're the ones telling you... It's essentially those people who say, you're not doing this right, or that's not jazz, or whatever. Yeah. That's what this supposedly about. This song, to me, I, I, I brave, whatever you want to call it. This I got another word for it. It's unlistenable. I despise this song. Totally disagree. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. It's just oh, so interesting. It is there, just an interesting. I could not come up with that song 
I, I can I can tell you one good reason to listen to this song. If you have a podcast and you have to to prepare for the podcast, that's a good reason to listen to it. Other than that, I I would hit fast forward. <laughs> but this is this is another one that's done by the same guy. Jeff yeah, Fisher. Jeff Fisher. Yeah, it's all his. I and, but it was basically given to you know the song was weirder originally. No, I didn't. Leonard know. Cohen says he actually wished he had not toned it down as much as he did. He might it, as well go all the way. I, uh, I, I, I just, I'm fascinated by this song. This song is simply awful. Well, I guess it's awful. One man's pleasure is another. As my grandmother used to say, JM, some people's taste is all in their mouths. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let the listeners be the judge. Please uh, write... Write Tony and tell him how wrong he is. Yeah, I, write Tony, I, yeah. Inundate his uh, email with... Yeah, I guess... Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, I, I'll, I I'll take it. The dog pile. If anybody else out there loves this song, please let me know and let me know why. Because I really... I... It, yeah. Anyway. It's a fantastic it's, song. Uh, there's some things that are interesting, like experimental music that people find interesting, uh, like this stuff where you're not even on a note, but... Mm-hmm. you're in the middle of a note or something mm-hmm. and uh i find that stuff fascinating and also don't want to listen to it <laughs> well i don't find i don't i i get what you're trying to do doug and i understand that you're trying to you're trying to sprinkle gold glitter like- on on a sprinkle gold glitter on this turd but it's a turd a turd by any other name so well i'm not saying it's not a turd i'm just saying it may be a uh, there may be interesting things happening uh, that would be better to read about than to listen to. <laughs> um, I was expecting universal disdain for yeah. that song. Not, it's one of my favorite songs in the album, so I'm a little shaken by that. But I can, I can recover. All right, moving on to the next song on side two. I can't forget. And boy, do I wish I could forget Jazz Police, but I can't. And I can't forget. I can't forget. But I don't remember what <laughs> Sorry. I just, just had an image of Leonard Cohen hitting the rhythm button on his keyboard and just put hitting one finger and hitting various keys. I like this song. I'm not actually la- I'm say not- he the way that the next song I've actually seen him do it and that's pretty uh, much what he did. I think that's fantastic. Um it just especially juxtaposed to what just came before it's oh this is a nice simple really this is my favorite song on the album. Oh really? Yep. Wow even more so than Take the Swaltz, huh? Um oh yeah. I um it's a Kind this of a funny song. So, well, it is funny. Uh, the image, I, I love some of the imagery in it. And just, uh, yeah. again, this is maybe one of the places where I do get the joke. Having Leonard Cohen sing about a rig is funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> or waking up, waking up and seeing your gut. Yeah. Yeah. And this can't be me. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, this song was originally about, you know what this song is originally about, right? I'm assuming you do, Doug. You done, did. I may have forgotten. It was originally about ex- the Exodus from Egypt. Well, I didn't know that. And and here's an interesting thing about Leonard Cohen. He believes that a singer 
has to sing about his experience. And because he was not born in chains, he wasn't taken out of Egypt, and um, he didn't feel like that was an appropriate thing to write lyrics about. So he switched the song um, and the focus of the song to be about this. Um, I I like this song. I, um, I love it. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, and as Doug said, it would it's a nice uh reprieve. Or, or, yeah, it's like okay. <laughs> well, it's got some there's some odd key changes throughout it. I don't know if y'all I mean, if you listen to it closely, it's it's not a real simple song. And it swings a little it bit. Swings it does. A little bit. And yeah. his vocals on it, I think are really kind of they have that call kind of this lilting kind of hushed. Yeah. Lilt. Well, yeah. to me, it, one of the reasons it may be there's so much music that's written by 20-year-olds, mm-hmm. maybe 30 years. There's not very much music written by people who are our age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, man, you, this is this a song is, for people our age. Yeah, this whole uh, album is for people it's, our age. You know, he's not, he's not talking about how he's going to go out and climb a mountain. He's not talking about all the great things he's done. He's just saying, well... I'm gonna get by today. Mm-hmm. He's he's all of you know those expectations. Mm-hmm. The, the older you get, your expectations are reined in, and I can feel that deeply in this song. Well, they just become more yeah. realistic. Yeah. Well, which is the same as re- really the men. If you had uh, crazy, like I was gonna be, uh, I was gonna make monster movies. I was gonna be uh, Bruce Springsteen. I was gonna be Bob Dylan. And I was gonna be Bob Wills, and. Uh, why don't you make a monster movie where Bob Wills fights? Uh, that would be Bruce great. Springsteen. <laughs> All those guys get together to fight the monster. I made myself. I've made a promise to myself. No matter what happens when you get old, you cannot not make monster movies when you grow up. That you have to keep this promise to yourself. And have you made any? No. Hmm. But I did invent a lot of monsters. Um. All right. Moving on to the last song. I think this album ends on a. Very fine note, Tower of Song. I said to Hank Williams, how lonely does it get? Hank Williams hasn't answered yet, but I hear him coughing all that long. Oh, a hundred floors above me in the Tower of Song. So I like this song musically but i really like the concept i do too this is gonna sound kind of weird but it, it seems like leonard cohen at his most vulnerable no i think it is because it's about him struggling with the process of writing a song yeah and uh the idea that there are others who did it as well yeah and they're sort of in- like i ask hank williams how lonely does it get yeah. hank williams hasn't answered yet like like you're looking for something yeah. from Hank Williams yep. inspiration, not necessarily from the ghost of Hank Williams. But, right. And uh, this is the one where he was born with the Yeah, he, well, he had no choice. <laughs> right? You know what it says? I was yeah. born like this, I had no choice. I was born born with the gift of a golden voice. voice. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's and that's so good. Uh, no, I think this song so from what I understand uh, the whole thing is so good. It's talking about the voodoo doll. Yeah, I'm very sorry, baby, but yeah. it doesn't look like me at all. Like me at all. <laughs> so I, I think I think this is the one song where it just that whole the whole idea of not taking himself seriously, but also kind of talking about something that has yeah. some seriousness to it. This it works better than any other song on this album to me. This song. I think is, is this, this is your most... favorite or the waltz? Was oh no, t- 
uh, Take This Waltz is my favorite song. This is probably my second favorite song. I think it's a great way to end the album. Again, I love the, just this concept of, a, of this. I, I see it as a, I mean, I know it says tower, but I see like this just single story tower. Yeah. And each writer's in their own little room. It's not like an apartment or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I don't know why that image is in my head. And it's round. It's a round tire, tower, by yeah. the way. Or yeah. it could be Capital like Records. the Tower of London where you get locked up. Yeah. Yeah. Where you, you're not coming out until yeah. you have your job done. Yep. The, I mean, uh, yeah. This is such a step down from the way the album started. Well, at the beginning, we're, we've got jets screaming yeah. to take over and blow things up. And now... He's talking about, gosh, it's hard to write a song sometimes. <laughs> so he he actually, the the ra- original name of this song was called Raise My Voice in Song. And he wrote, he worked on it for a long time and then he put it aside. And then one night he's in Montreal and he just completed the lyrics and he calls his engineer and they recorded it in one take using a toy synthesizer is what he said. Well, so, when I saw him perform it, it literally was him pressing a button, pressing a button, pressing well, another button and... But he was just like, I, this is when he was giving the speech about it's amazing what these machines yeah. can do. And that was 30 years ago when I yeah. saw it. But, well, it's, it's, this is a fine song again, uh, just all the way around. I think, I think if the rest of the album had been more like this, I probably would have been a little bit more acceptable of it, accepting of it. I'm sorry. Well, you know how that is, Tony. You're probably thinking about, those clubs you went to in college <laughs> and now you you realizing that you're starting to ache in the places you used to play <laughs> <laughs> i think somebody asked him about that line one time and he says i don't even know where those places are anymore <laughs> uh, that was pretty funny oh that's a good line yeah i ache in the places i used to play um all right anything else we want to say guys before we wrap it up I don't. I think it's a, this. If you want to get into Leonard Cohen, I think this is a very good place to start. I think cons- it may be his most consistent album of the ones that I've heard. I there's one that came out after this. Um, you want it darker, which I think was his last album that he made while he was still alive. Magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame A million candles burning for the help that never came You want it darker It's really, really good. But this one to me is just a, a great introduction to him. And it, it, it Did really, this sell more than the others? I don't know. This... this um... It gets consistently I, good reviews. I, I remember hearing a lot of this on the radio. Mm-hmm. This this album you did? Uh-huh. And that may have been KUT, which would just be playing it so people could feel smart. <laughs> That's um, the uh, National Pretentious Radio Station here in Austin. No, I mean, the critics love this album, and I think it did give him a, a bit of a wider audience. I don't know if I'd agree with James' assessment that this is this is a good place to get into Leonard Cohen, um, but I'm going to leave. He's the Leonard Cohen guy. He brought this album. I'll leave that to him, but uh, I have a very different feeling about this particular album than he does, so hmm. just leave it one, at that. One, place it's, one good place to get into Leonard Cohen is through Jennifer Warren. That's a fantastic yeah. album. Yeah. It's famous great, blue red coat and you'll you'll be able to hear his songs in a, a more palatable thing uh, you know there's there it takes some time to get used to some voices and zero time to get used to jennifer warren's voice yeah. 
but yeah. she'll introduce you to his songs. Well, I, you know, I feel like those first couple of Leonard Cohen albums shouldn't be jarring to anybody. I, I would say that uh, the first album's not jarring if you listen to a lot of sparse folk music. Yeah. But if you're uh, coming at it from a rock and roll background or something, I think uh, Jennifer Warren's an easy on-ramp. Yeah. Well, I just, I guess I'm thinking of him in terms of that whole early Dylan stuff, you know? And, uh, um, early Dylan is jarring to a lot of people. I guess so. Listen to, uh, I guess so. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, JM. I, I can't say you convinced me, but I do have a different, somewhat different understanding. And Doug, you as well gave me some insight that I didn't have before. So appreciate that. Um, That's what we're here for. I guess this is the point where we're going to rate the album mm-hmm. and since this is your pick jam i'm going to go to doug first doug what do you give this album both critically and uh as we do just explain it real quick we give two ratings uh, from one to five our critical rating which is our critics rating which is we may not like it but we 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 understand that it's got some some um critical weight to it and so we may rate that higher versus our personal rating which is will we listen to the album again so Douglas, where are you, well, sir? I, I grew up in a house with this music playing, not this album, but Leonard Cohen. Uh, it was my father's favorite. He he was fascinated by the the lyrics. I think he read his books also. Um, so I have a I have a special place for him. I would on my personal personal level, I would give it a four one. Um, I'm taking a lot of points off uh, for some of the instrumentation for the little technique keyboard thing we talked about. You know, there's only eight songs, and one of them is the Jazz Police. So that's that's a big hit. But one of uh, most important things on the record is lyrics, and this album has brilliant lyrics, as do all of his. Uh, as a critic. I'm going to say 4-3. Some of the things, the, the instrumentation that bothers me, uh, that's somewhat personal. Uh, that's me associating those noises with other things that I hate, uh, like the 80s uh, <laughs> and the 90s. And, uh, anyway, I, um, so it's a little outside. That sound is outside of what I'm used to and takes me a long time. But I always have to remember that I can't, uh, I can't judge as a critic those personalized things that I hate. So that's it. Okay. So we'll go to me next. Um, I'm going to start with my critic rating. I don't see those things as being as personal as Doug does. I want to say this is, in my opinion, the most dated album we've ever reviewed. It sounds more of its time and not musically a time that was very deep. Um, than maybe any album we've done. Uh, I, I agree, the lyrics are the most important thing on this album, but I'd much rather it have been a spoken word album if that's the case than some of the instrumentation used on this album. It took me out of the vast majority of the songs. Um, and, and I know that's getting in my personal, so I'm going to take that out. But just say, I think it sounds very dated. As a result of that, I'm going to give it a 2.5, my critic rating. Um, my personal rating... Um, 
I really struggled with this album. I wanted to have an aha moment like I've had with other albums. I've talked before about stuff that I came into. There's plenty of stuff I came into with the idea that I didn't want to listen to it and came out of the other end really, really surprised by it. Um, and I was waiting for that on this and it just never happened. Um, Take This Waltz, I think, is a wonderful song. I would never, ever get sick of listening to it. I will probably seek it out and listen to it. I think Tower of Song is a great song. But to me, two songs do not make an album. And we're, we're, we're tasked with talking about it in its cohesive whole and why it's worth listening to. And I won't listen to this album again. So I'm going to give it a one. All right, Jam. My critics rating and my personal rating are... I can't not listen to this as a critic, if that makes sense. There, There is so much where I'm listening to it going, wow, he is, uh, these lyrics are amazing. They're very clever. The instrumentation is a little bit out there, but there are some things that he does that are, that are pretty cool. Um, except for... The one there there's, might be able to do two songs. Jazz Police, I think, is just a remarkable song. I don't hear many songs like that. Um, and then Take This Waltz just hits me very personally. So I'm going to go with my, my personal rating first. I, like Doug, came to... I knew who Leonard Cohen was before this album came out, but I did not know him as a as an artist in and of himself. This was such a pleasant surprise that I was just shocked by how much I liked it when I first heard the album, um, that I'm going to give it a four, eight personally as a critic. The production sounds very dated. Um, but I think that works, uh, on a personal level but as a critic i'm going to say yeah it's a 4-1 on uh, critically but i don't think there's a bad song on this album okay well as again uh one of us is an outlier and uh, <laughs> i'll take that hit please i i we really i really would like to hear from people if they have a different opinion about this to try to kind of convince me otherwise i'm, I'm not I don't want to. I don't want to dig my heels, and that's the one thing I've learned about doing this podcast is that's a stupid way to approach music. I want to be open to stuff. So, yeah. Anyway, thank you, Jam, for bringing this. I, I don't regret listening to it. I just wish I enjoyed it. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's the only thing. All right. Uh, I believe you've got a recommendation for us as well, Jam. I do, and uh, so there is a great documentary <laughs> that is done on Leonard Cohen by HBO, and uh, it's talks to Leonard Cohen pretty soon after all this happened. And it's a bunch of people interpreting his songs, but interspersed it, there's doc, there's uh, footage of talking to Leonard Cohen and documentary footage of him from his early days. And it is a fascinating piece. of. What's music. the name of it? Uh, Leonard Cohen. I'm your man from 2005. All right. So that uh, concludes this episode of this is vinyl tap. Be sure and look us up on our various uh, media platforms. We are on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl. We have a Facebook group page. But the best way to get in touch with us is through our wonderful, ever-expanding 
uh, wealth of information webpage, tappingvinyl.com. You can find all sorts of good stuff up there. There's ways to get in touch with us, uh, and you can leave a recommendation for us. And speaking of recommendations, next week, the album that we're going to be looking at comes from you, our loyal listeners. We're going to be looking at Love's album, Forever Changes. For our host, Doug Cooper, our co-host, Tony Slagle, and me, your humble producer, this is Final Tap, where all the podcasts go to 11. And remember, there ain't no cure for love. I mean, I'm talking about Gamera. No, I know. You're talking See, I'm about... I'm talking about Frankenstein. No, you're talking about... Yeah, that. what do they call them? Kaiju? Yeah. Well, Friends of children. Well, Gamera is a friend of child. I don't think yes. all the rest are. Like that big but, shark with a knife in its head. Godzilla ended up being a friend of children at one point. He, Godzilla he keeps changing because too many people get their hands on him. They do. Yeah. He comes yeah. to New York and he turns into an iguana and he's not a friend of anybody. No, but on yeah. uh, Godzilla versus Megalon, he's... Teams up with a giant robot to yep. help the world. That was one of my favorites when I was a kid. Yeah, well, How about Slay Stack? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right.